right. John chapter 3. If you're there, would you say amen? amen? All right. Let's pray. We'll jump into this. Father, bless your word now tonight and to help us as we look at the word of God and Lord, try to maybe just give another challenge again. Lord, about just, just boldly standing up for Jesus in these last days. And God, may we all position ourselves around the cross and stay near to the cross, linger around Calvary. Lord, as we go there for pardon, but we linger there for power. And I pray you'd help us, please, from the story tonight that we find in the Word of God, help us to boldly in these last days take our stand for Jesus. Stand up for Jesus and do our best to let others know that we're not ashamed about what He's done for us nor who He is. Bless your Word tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm preaching tonight, if you'll look up on the screens, I'm preaching on the subject tonight of closet Christians. And it's about time for many of God's people to come out of the closet and take their stand for Jesus. Now, when I use that phrase about coming out of the closet, of course it has a very negative connotation with it in our day because uh, normally when we hear of somebody who come out of the closet, it's some kind of sexual perversion or whatever. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. I, and I think you know that. Uh, you know, I've said before, the sodomites are coming out of the closet. We're putting them in the cabinet in our day. And that's not at all what I'm talking about. But I do think it's time for God's people, those of us that are saved, to come out of the closet and uh, boldly take our stand for the Lord Jesus. And uh, just standing up and letting people know whose side that we're on. So as I preach tonight about being a closet Christian, I want to start the message just quickly by asking a question. My question is this, is it good to be a closet Christian or is it bad to be a closet Christian? So if somebody come up to you tomorrow and said, hey, is it okay for me to be a closet Christian? Uh, the answer to that, is it good or is it bad to be a closet Christian? The answer is yes. Yes. Now when I say it's yes, uh, to be a, it's yes because it's good to be a closet Christian and yes because it's bad to be a closet Christian. What in the world am I saying? Are you as confused as I am right now? Let me see if I can just quickly make some sense out of this. Now when I say it's good to be a closet Christian, I, I do so on the basis of the fact of what Jesus said about being a closet Christian. Did you know actually Jesus commended closet Christianity? In fact, Jesus spoke very highly of it on one occasion when he said this right here regarding being a closet Christian. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues in the corners of the street, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say to you, they have their reward. That's the wrong kind of praying. The kind of praying to be heard of man. We're not praying to be heard of man. We're praying to gain the ear of God. And Jesus has said, man, don't pray like that. But then here's what he said. Here's a good way to pray. But thou, when thou prayest, and then watch this now. He said, enter into thy what? Well, that's good. Jesus is commending closet Christianity. He said, when you pray, enter your closet and pray to thy Father which is not in secret. And when thy Father which seeth in secret, he shall reward thee opening. So if you're talking about that kind of closet Christianity, let me just say yes, a great big yes. Because many of us, many of us need to go back in the closet again. Many of us need to get back in the closet, shut the door, and pray to the Father which is in secret and, and watch him answer our prayers publicly. You know, it's one thing. Boy, there's a lot of people today who want to run around and talk about everything that's wrong. And boy, they've not got a good word about this. They don't have a good word about that. They don't have a good word about their church or a good word about their preacher. But I really wonder, you know, it's one thing to talk about how bad things are. But can I ask you, when's the last time you got in the closet and talked to God about it? 
You know, it's one thing to tout how bad everything is. It's one thing to talk about how terrible everything is. It's one thing to talk about how, how man, it's just, it's just miserable. But when's the last time? In fact, I'll tell you what. Maybe if we got in a closet more, it would be better. Can I have an amen? So if we're talking about that kind of closet Christianity, let me just say, boy, that's good. If there's one thing all of us need to do tonight in this room, and I think everybody in here would agree with me when I say, you know, one thing we don't do near enough of is get in the closet and pray. Can I have an amen? One of the greatest failures in our Christian life as a child of God is that we just don't pray like we ought to pray. And I know we say amen to that. We come to church, I say amen to that, you say amen to that, but then we leave. And we don't do any more praying than we did when we came. We need closet Christians. We need some people of God to get back in the closet again and cry out to the Lord Jesus for mercy and grace and courage and boldness. So yes, yes, we need closet Christians. But I'm not preaching about that kind. Because there is another kind of closet Christianity that's killing us today. And that kind of Christianity, closet Christianity, is that kind of Christianity that we want to try to slip through this world, not really taking our stand for Jesus, standing up for the Lord, and really afraid of talking about what Jesus really means to us. I'm afraid too many of us, I said this last Sunday night, are trying to slip through this world incognito. Oh, we come to church. We talk about Jesus. We stand up and give testimony. We sing songs about Jesus. But when Monday morning comes, we slip our dark sunglasses back on again. We put our heavy overcoats on, our broad brim hats, and we try to head off into a world not standing up, not standing out, not speaking up or sticking up for Jesus. I'm telling you, that kind of closet Christianity is killing us in these days. You know, in fact, can I say it like this? Maybe if we'd get in the closet, maybe we could come out of the closet and stand up for Jesus. Amen. We need to go back in the closet and then come out of the closet and stand up for Jesus. Well, if you think back to last Sunday night, I preached about a man who was, uh, who was a disciple of Jesus, but he was secret, a secret disciple because he was fearful of what the Jews may think about him. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. And you remember old Joseph of Arimathea was the one who came after Jesus died, after viewing the events of Calvary. Boy, Calvary did something for old Joseph of Arimathea. Because the Bible said prior to Calvary, here's what we read about him. John chapter 38 verse 8, after this Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, being a disciple, but what's the next phrase? But secretly for fear of the Jews. Buddy, I want to tell you, he was like a lot of Christians in our day. He was a follower of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. But boy, he was just shy and timid about that uh, when it came to others because he was afraid of what other people might say about him. You know, he's afraid of maybe being labeled a Jesus fanatic or uh, maybe he was afraid of being labeled one of those crazy Christians or, or whatever. And uh, buddy, uh, here, here he, he, he closed himself up. He would not stand up for his faith, but then something happened to him boy, after, after he uh, went to Calvary that day, something about that trip to Calvary brought him out of the closet because in Mark's gospel, we read this, and Joseph came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of, what happened to that old boy? Calvary made a difference in his life. 
And I say again, somehow or another, if you and I could spend more time around Calvary, if you and I could spend more time in the closet, man, I think we would uh, be a lot more apt to come out of the closet, to, to, to come away from Calvary, and to be bold in our faith for Jesus. Well, that was Joseph of Arimathea. But can I tell you this? Joseph was not alone that day when he went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. Joseph was not the only, I guess I could say, secret disciple, closet Christian that day that stood around the cross. Because we read tonight, and I'm going to tell you the story tonight, of another man who also was at Calvary the day that Jesus died. And what he saw at Calvary the day, that, that day took him from the shadows into the spotlight of profession and confession of the Lord Jesus. And think about it is, we know who this guy is. We're familiar with this guy because his name was Nicodemus. Now, we know the story of Nicodemus, at least as it appears here in the Gospel of John chapter number 3. But can I tell you this? This is not the only time that Nicodemus appears in the Gospel of John. The name Nicodemus means the innocent one, evidently a good man, an upright man. To have a name like that, you know, innocent, uh, you know, as far as you know, outwardly speaking, you couldn't find any flaws in his life. And that was the kind of old boy that Nicodemus was. And yet, as we follow him through the Gospel of John, and by the way, he's only mentioned in the Gospel of John. Matthew doesn't talk about him. Mark or Luke talk about him. Only in the Gospel of John do we read about this man by the name of Nicodemus. But let me tell you this, the day that Joseph of Arimathea came out of the shadows, stepped in the spotlight, and boldly declared his faith in the Son of God, there was somebody else standing right there beside of him, and his name was Nicodemus. Now, I want to tell you tonight, if I can, in the Gospel of John, let's piece together the story of his life as we look at the three episodes very quickly in the Gospel of John where old Nicodemus appears. First of all, in chapter 3, obviously, we're familiar with Nicodemus in John chapter number 3. And I'm calling this tonight, this first episode in his life, we see Nicodemus in the darkness of confusion. The darkness of of confusion. You see, most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with John chapter 3 because this is the chapter where Jesus talks about being born again. And what we find in this chapter when Jesus spoke those words about being born again, and by the way, when he gave that great verse, John 3, 16, guess who he was talking to? That's right. He was talking to Nicodemus. And really what I think had happened is old Nicodemus had been hearing and, and watching the life of the Lord Jesus. And something about the life of Jesus, the things that he said, some of the things that he did piqued an interest in the heart of old Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of those who were on the Sanhedrin court, just like Joseph of Arimathea was. He was very versed in Old Testament Scripture. And buddy, when he got to hearing about what Jesus was doing, hearing some of the things that Jesus was saying, watching some of the things that Jesus, the, the miracles that Jesus was performing, old Nicodemus's curiosity was aroused and piqued to the point that he finally he said, enough's enough. i got to go talk to Jesus. So in John chapter 3 and verse number 1, the Bible said in verse number 2 that old Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, he came to Jesus by night. He is in the darkness 
of confusion. Now, let me tell you what I think really happened. I think because of the events of what Jesus did back in chapter number 2, Nicodemus' conscience was stirred about who Jesus really was. You see, back in chapter number 2, Jesus has gone into the temple there, and he's actually cleansed the temple. You remember the story? He went in, he overthrew the table. Boy, Jesus acted like he was, on a, he was on a wrestling, man, on wrestling. He went in, threw the tables over, and man, made a scourge, started whipping people, running people out of the house of God. I mean, buddy, he was just he was just having a fit that day right there in the house of God. You know, most time we think about Jesus, little mo meek and lowly Jesus, you know. Uh, I said, but I'll tell you, John chapter 2, his righteous indignation was stirred because of what he saw happening in the house of God that day. But he went in and said, it's about time to clean this place up, clean this mess out. And he did so back in John chapter 2. Well, look back in chapter 2, verse 17. The Bible said this, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. By the way, can I say this? I'm eat up with the house of God. I'm eat up with the house of God. I spend almost every night of my life somewhere in the house of God. I'm eat up with this place, man. I, guess what? When I head up the road tonight, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to preach on Wednesday night. And Wednesday night when I head up the road, I already be thinking about when I get to come back on Sunday. I, my life revolves around the house of God. I could say it like this. The zeal of thine house has eaten up. I'm eat up with church. Can I have an amen? And if you're saved tonight, you ought to be eat up with church. I mean, our interests ought to be piqued and stirred about what goes on at the house of God. I've been saved since I was 16 years old. Been preaching since I was 18. I don't know how many years. That's 40 years or so. But buddy, I'm telling you, I'm more eat up with it tonight than I've ever been eat up with it in my life. I love, I care, I desire, I crave the house of God. The Bible said those disciples mentioned they reached way back into the Old Testament and pulled that verse out about Jesus, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And buddy, I think Nicodemus knew that verse as well. And when Jesus went in there and started cleaning that crowd out that day and cleaning up things in the house of God, Nicodemus said, man, there's more to it than this old boy just being a false prophet. I've got to go talk to Jesus. And what did Jesus say, Nicodemus? Ye must... Be born again. That's right. You see, Nicodemus had it all wrong. Look at verse 2. He had it all wrong about who Jesus was. He's in the darkness of confusion. He said this, We know that thou art a teacher come from God. He was all wrong about that. Jesus was not a teacher come from God. Jesus was God who came to teach. And guess what his main lesson was? You must be born again. Amen. Hey, by the way, that's the message of the church today. We're still looking at people thousands of years later. and We're saying, hey, ye must be born. If you're going to go to heaven, Jesus said there's only one way. You can't, in verse number three, is it verse number three? He talked about in verse three, if you don't get born again, you can't envision heaven. And then down in verse number six, uh, verse seven, verse eight, somewhere in there, verse, verse number five, Jesus said if you don't get born again, not only can you not envision heaven, but if you don't get born again, you can enter heaven. The only the only way to get into heaven is by being born again. By the way, I could have understood that if Jesus would have spoke that to some of old cussing Peter's buddies, fishing buddies. 
I could have understood that if he had spoke those words about being born again to some of the maniac of Gadara's buddies. I could understand Jesus preaching and talking about getting born again if he'd been maybe talking about some of Mary Magdalene's. You know, she had seven devils in her. And uh, some of her friends, I could understand that. But Nicodemus, a good man, a religious man, uh, an upstanding man, uh, a man that was respected and revered by the community. And yes, Jesus said even people like that must be born again. I know when we think about being born again, we think about the hell's angels and drug addicts and dopes and drunkards and harlots and street walkers. That's the kind of idea we have. But ladies and gentlemen, the most upright person in this world, I'm talking about the most respected, the, the greatest reputation, the most religious person. If they don't get born again, they have no hope of heaven whatsoever. He's in the darkness of confusion. Oh, I wonder tonight if anybody sits in this room in the darkness of confusion. So there we see him now. He's come to Jesus by night. He's full of questions. Got more questions than he does answers. And Jesus looked that very respectable, that very religious man. That, By the way, he was a Pharisee. Can I tell you who they were? They were the right-wing fundamentalists of that day. They really were. I mean, they dotted every religious I, crossed every religious T. I mean, buddy, they were the separatists. I mean, they, they didn't believe in, in mingling with the world. I mean, man, you talk about they were gun barrel straight. The only problem was they were just as empty, had nothing on the inside. And Jesus looked at that man and said, okay, you want to know the truth? You must be born again. Boy, I just want to say these many years later, if you're going to go to heaven, you've got to get born again the darkness of confusion. Now go with me to chapter 7. Now something happens in chapter 7. When we run into him again, something happens. Turn over to chapter 7 now, page number 1125 in the Old Schofield Bible, and we read about Nicodemus a second time. And this time, I don't, I don't know. Maybe he left that meeting with Jesus that night. Maybe he went home and said, man, I tell you, there is, that is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Maybe he got saved that night. I don't know. But I do know by the time we come to uh, chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, he's different. And the reason I say that is he's actually, he actually gives a little testimony about Jesus in this chapter. So join me now in John chapter number 7. And uh, let's see, look down, if you will, in about verse number, well, chapter 7. Look at verse number 44, 45. The Bible said uh, that they were mad at Jesus. These religious rulers were. Look at verse 43. There was a division among the people because of Jesus, because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests, I'm in verse 45, and the Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have you not brought him? You see in these verses right above this, they've hired some soldiers to go out and arrest Jesus and bring Jesus to them, and they want to put him to death. So these soldiers come back and, and, uh, and they say, Why did you not arrest him? Well, look at verse 46. What did I preach on Wednesday night? Does anybody remember? What? Never Look at verse 46. I almost used this one, but I didn't. The officers answered, Hey, why didn't y'all bring him? They said this, Never man spake like this man. Oh, there was something about the, the words of the Lord Jesus. They said, Man, we never heard anybody speak like that. We couldn't lay our hands on that guy. Well, in verse 47, Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? In verse number 48, Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed? On him. Now they say, hey, have, listen, we're the religious rulers. We know the, the ins and outs of this thing. Have you seen any of us 
believe on Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. And then in verse number 40, uh, uh, verse 49, but this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Now here comes old Nicodemus. Nicodemus saith unto them, the same that came to Jesus by night, being one of them. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's one of that crowd now that's wanting to arrest Jesus and have Jesus put to death. He is one of them. Back up in this same chapter, if you look up back up in verse number 44 and 45 and 46 there, when we read about they and, and, and so forth on down through here, uh, that they is talking about that religious crowd that Nicodemus is a part of. And then we come to verse number 50 and he, we're even told that he's one of them. And then verse 51, Nicodemus said, Doth our law, law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Now, believe this or not, He's taking a stand for Jesus right there. He is saying, you know something? Before we can condemn this man, he's got to have a proper hearing. He's got to have a, a proper trial. We don't condemn people without a trial or without a hearing. Now, I know, I get, I'm like you. That's a very mild stand for Jesus. But look at me. Even a mild stand for Jesus is better than no stand for Jesus. And then if you'll look down in verse 51, I'm sorry, verse 52, they jumped all over him. Look at verse 52. Then I, uh, they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Now, I want to tell you something. When they said that, that was like throwing cold water in the face of Nicodemus because Galilee was the backwoods country. Nobody would want to be from Galilee. And they knew that Jesus was from Nazareth, which was from Galilee. Being from Galilee would be like this. I mean, it's a, really a smack in the face. It would be like this. How many Carolina fans are in here tonight? I mean, big, huge Carolina fans are in here tonight. Raise your hand so we can see how we need to pray for you. Would you raise your hand? Now watch this. Wouldn't it be an insult if I said to these Carolina fans, Art thou also from Durham? How many... Uh, how many Red Sox fans are in here tonight? I used to be one, but not no more. But how many Red Sox? We've got a few in here. It would be like me saying to a Red Sox fan, Art thou also from New York? What an insult. I mean, and when, when this crowd looked at him and said, Hey, are you from Galilee? I mean, are you crazy? Are you from the backwoods? Then they said, This search and look for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. In other words, man, they just let him have it. Are you one of his? Are you one of them from Galilee? Don't be surprised that when you take even a mild stand for Jesus, if you're not the very people that are your friends, don't become your fiercest enemy. I don't know why that's so, but that's the reason many people won't step out of the closet because they're afraid of what other people are going to say to them. And if you look in our text, verse 53, and every man went unto his own house. Nicodemus didn't say another word. He just gave a little mild testimony for Jesus. He took a little stand for Jesus. And I just want to encourage this man as we live in this world in these last days, hey, let's take our stand for Jesus. Let's, let's come out of the closet and let's stand up uh, for, for Jesus. And then, so we see Nicodemus in the darkness of confusion. We see him next in the dawn in chapter 7, the dawn of conviction. Chapter 7. He took a mild stand for Jesus. But last of all, we see him in the daylight of confession. You see, he's seen one more time in the Gospel of John. So go with me now to John chapter 19. And in John chapter 19, we are told in this text that Jesus has now died. Just like Joseph of Arimathea, 
Jesus, the story of Joseph, Jesus has died on the cross. He suffered in agony and in pain for six hours. He hung upon the cross, and then he died. He laid his holy head upon his holy breast, and he gave up the ghost. It's over. Jesus is now dead. Hook him up to an e EKG. There's no heart activity. He's dead. Put the electrodes on his head. Run an EEG. There's no brain activity. Jesus has now died. I don't know if what I'm about to tell you is true or not, but this is what I read. And it almost sounds true when you think about the animosity that the religious people of that day had toward Jesus. But when I read this, I thought, man, it could be true. What I read was that when Jesus died on the cross, had there not been some people that was willing to step out of the shadows and into the spotlight and come up and to make a public profession of Jesus, that those religious leaders would have took Jesus' body down off that cross and probably just discarded it in a place called Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, where they just threw the bodies of animals and executed criminals and just threw them out there in that body. Probably knowing the animosity and the hatred that that religious crowd had for Jesus, that probably would have been the end result of Jesus had it not been for Joseph and had it not been for Nicodemus. Let me show you what happened. Look in our text now. John chapter 19. The Bible said in verse 38, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He therefore came and took the body of Jesus. But he wasn't by himself. Look at verse 39. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Now let me tell you something about Nicodemus I haven't told you before. Most people think that Nicodemus was the third richest man in Jerusalem during that particular day. Most people think that this Nicodemus is the Nicodemus, uh, his last name or whatever, was Nicodemus ben Gurion. And he was actually a brother to Josephus if tradition has it right, to Josephus, the famous Jewish historian that wrote much about Jesus from a historical standpoint. Most people think those two were brothers. That be the case, Nicodemus was a filthy, rich man. I think from what's indicated in verse 39 when the Bible said that, they brought, that he brought this mixture of myrrh and aloes, and then the Holy Spirit is very careful to always acknowledge what's done for Jesus. And it says this, about a hundred pound weight. It's almost like this. Joseph said, I've got the sepulcher. Nicodemus, you get the spices. We're going to give Jesus the burial of a king. You know what they're doing? I'll just tell you what they're doing. They're just taking a stand for Jesus. Now, I get it. I'm like you. He ain't going to need them spices, and he ain't going to need that sepulcher because he's getting ready to rise from the dead. But it was their way of stepping out of the shadows into the spotlight and taking their stand for Jesus. You know something? If there's one thing that we desperately need in these last hours, it is for people to stand up and take their stand for Jesus. Nicodemus did what he could do. And by the way, can I tell you, if history is right, and he is Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, can I tell you something? The third richest man in Jerusalem died a pauper. Because history says 
that this Nicodemus, if this is the same one, actually died as one of the poorest men in all the land of Jerusalem, in, Jer in the city of Jerusalem, because his daughters were actually seen out gathering the little spriglets of barley that fell on the road under the horse's hoofs to feed his family, which would indicate to me that because of his stand for Jesus, he lost everything. But what she just sing about a moment ago? I lost it all to find that Jesus would be everything. And can I tell you something? He may have died one of the poorest men on this earth at that particular time, but I promise you this, he's one of the richest men in heaven tonight. Because whatever we give up for Jesus, I promise you, Jesus will compensate us well when we get home to heaven. I'm just trying to say, man, don't, don't stay in the closet. Don't be ashamed. Don't back up. Man, don't let this world cower us down. We're God's people. We're on the winning side. We don't have to be ashamed. We can stand up with boldness, not arrogance. See, I don't want to be arrogant. I want to have a good spirit. But we can stand up with boldness and say, we love Jesus. We believe the Bible. We believe that the Word of God is, in fact, God's Word and contains the truth that we live by in these days. And we're not ashamed of that. God, help me and you to get in the closet so we can come out of the closet and stand up for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father.